Well, we're in the fourth week of a five-week series we've titled Everybody Always. I wish I could tell you it was original, but it comes from a Bob Goff book. Many of you are in groups that are actually studying through this series with a video study alongside of it. The, the simple principle is that we are learning to love our neighbor and what that means. Even in a more particular way for us as a church, we understand that our mission is to be radically loving, we say, and growing together in Christ. Now tell me, radical love doesn't sound awesome. It does, doesn't it? I mean, you hear that idea, you go, yes, the church is to be radically loving. I love this. It's one of those things that speaks beautifully and easy, but the living it out is virtually overwhelming, isn't it? Both in our own experience of how we do it to others and how it's done to us, we can think of the places we struggle and we think of the places that we're hurt by others, and it's difficult. And so today what we're going to look into is a very particular facet, a very particular time in Jesus' life as he walked the earth. Now we're going to look at what's a prayer of Jesus, and make no mistake, Jesus teaches on prayer pretty regularly throughout the four accounts of his life, death and resurrection. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all accounts. They're gospels, we call them. And in it particularly, we learn a pattern of prayer. Jesus teaches us what we call the Lord's Prayer. It's a pattern. After that, he actually goes into pretty specific kind of ideas, at least in Luke's account, of what that looks like. Not just the pattern, but what's the heart behind it? How often do I do it? What's the disposition I have in it? It's really beautiful things. We have other facets where it tells us that he steals away. He goes to a desert-like place to be with the Father to pray. But there is really only one place where we get an intimate picture into his very prayer to the Father. There's other places he prays. In fact, there's one where he says, Father, I am doing this so everyone else can hear, basically. I want them to know. This is one, though, that we get a window into that's just a window into his words, a window into his heart, a window into what matters to his closeness and his oneness with the Father. Now, we're not going to look at the whole prayer. It's in John chapter 17. If you follow along or want to know where it is, the beginning of this chapter is the first part of the prayer, which is him and the Father talking closely and intimately. Now, what's shocking and beautiful about it is when he prays, he's speaking to the Father about the glory, the power, the majesty, the wonder of what the Father's going to do through Jesus' very life, death, and resurrection. And at the place he's most going to struggle and most going to suffer, he speaks joyfully about the glory that God's going to bring through it. Now tell me that's not confusing. And yet we hear it and we go, that's beautiful. He then moves out one rung from just this private, intimate moment with the Father himself, and now he's praying for those who are with him. And he knows that they're going to struggle, that even through his resurrection, even through the new life they'll get in the Spirit, it will not protect them from pain and struggle. In fact, you might even recognize, for those of you who've been around the, around the church, some of the words he says in this, like, Father, don't take them out of the world. Don't remove them and keep them safe. But in that place, give them your presence and your joy and your hope. In other words, when they're suffering, Father, would you somehow give them your spirit and make them joyful, even in the midst of suffering? Now, tell me, that's not also an amazing thing to pray. Whoa. And one of the things I want you to consider is if Jesus prayed it, you realize it's probably really important, right? So now we're going to take it out one more rung. We're going to get into chapter 17. I believe it's verse 20. We're going to begin. And we say this. This is what he begins to pray after he's prayed to the Father himself for his disciples. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Now, I want you to just consider this for a minute. 
Who is he praying for? It's okay, you can say it. It's us, right? It's not just the first century. Like he said, well, pray for those who are gonna hear their particular words. He's saying, there's a ripple effect, Father. The church will begin through what these early disciples say. It will go out to others, to the next generation, to the next generation, to the next generation, to, in perpetuity, it'll keep going. That means that when Jesus was in his lowest moment, he prayed for you and you and you and you and you, all of you and me. Wow. Is that not amazing? I mean, I think we run past this piece. That means we were on his mind and in his heart in the midst of his lowest point. We were there and he was on thinking about us and caring for us. So I want you to consider this. Now, this is Jesus' words. This is what we're going to look at is his prayer for all of us. And here's what he then follows and prays for us. Oh, and before I show it to you, do you think if Jesus prays it, he intends for it just to be a nice idea? He doesn't pray things that he doesn't believe or want to happen, right? So we know this is important. What we're going to see is something Jesus said, this is really important for the people that will come after me, that will follow me. So now we look at his prayer. That all of them, that all of them, not that most of them, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, not differently, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, did Jesus pray, pray that we'll be deeply effective and have this world-changing life? Now, he does ask for those things in different ways, but what is the centerpiece of what he prays for? Oneness. He prays for unity. Don't many of us think unity is kind of overrated? And unity is unattainable? I mean, that was what we would think. We can't even get along in our own families, can we? Have you ever had a discussion and realized we are not on the same page? and you really need to get to my page. I mean, it's difficult. We would say it's virtually impossible. And yet it's what Jesus prays. When I read this, sometimes I'm a little embarrassed. If I were to tell you how many denominations there are, even in the Christian church, it's sad, isn't it? How much we have kind of scattered from that. So I want you to understand, I'm not trying to bring us all back to this, we're gonna, but can we make movement? Could we consider what God might say to us today about what he means in this, that we will be one as he and the Father are one, that clearly there is a oneness that Godhead has. Now, rather than me try to define and explain it, I want you to get a picture of it. Because we have some beautiful pictures in the scriptures of what we call unity, of oneness. And one particular picture is both historical and what happens, but I think it's metaphoric for us, a great metaphor for us to consider what we are as the church and what we're intended to be. So I'm gonna take you back to Second Chronicles. In 2 Chronicles, it's a time when Solomon is charged by God to build a temple, to literally build a place where God's presence will dwell. Now, in case you, you don't know, the, the temple, and this is just a little bit of a side note, is the place that God, they really had God's presence dwell. So there was an outer court, we get the holy place, and then we have the holy of holies where he dwelt uniquely. Now, they had a tabernacle that they moved around temporarily. When we get to Solomon and get to this story, there's a few things that happen. David wanted to build it, but he had been such the warrior, God said, not your turn, it's gonna be your son. 
And so she tells Solomon he's get to. Now he's gonna bring Solomon into be with him and then he's gonna ask Solomon a question. Solomon, what's the one thing you want? What's one thing I can grant you? Think of it like a genie, although it's not, but God says, I'll give you whatever you want. And think of what you'd ask for. Now, many of us around the church know what Solomon asked for. Can you, those of you who do, what did he ask for? Wisdom. Isn't that amazing? And it's wonderful that he does, and we see it lots of ways. But guess what the first thing God has him do is? Build a temple. The first thing he has him do is put together this place where his very presence will dwell. Now, there's a couple of things I want you to get about this. One is that he gathers all these different people from Israel and each one has a function to play in it. And everyone is using their skills and their abilities to do one thing, build a place where God's presence will dwell. Now, also, if you don't think there's a context for this, just to give you a broader one, uh, if you look at the narrative of the Genesis, the, the creation story, the history of humanity, and you compare it to other narratives of other versions of what people thought it was like, one of the things that's common to this with all others is there's called a, a cosmological temple. In other words, what it is is God builds, has this building so that he can dwell. And the very thing of making the heavens and the earth and all that he makes for man to be in and woman to be in is in a sense a temple for him. The story of creation is a story of where God will dwell and be with his people, beautifully. I want you to get that because it's the same thing here. Now he's giving a physicality to it. So along the way, they build this temple and in the final culmination of it, they all come together. The Ark of the Covenant goes in, which is where his presence is seen to be. And it says, as one man, as man and woman, with one voice, with all those playing instruments, they sang and played together in unison as one. The word is echad. And the word for one here is the same word that's used to describe when man and woman are made and they come together, the two shall be one in complete unity. When God tells Israel, behold, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, echad, same word. I want you to see this because there's this beautiful picture. God always had in mind unity, that somehow there's this oneness. There's oneness within God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's oneness desired for man and woman, and guess what in his church? One. So they build the temple. It says they sang as one person with one voice, he is good and his mercy endures forever. Now at the singing of this, something happens that has not happened before when they're all hanging out. It says the glory of God came down in a cloud. Now just as a side note, the cloud, and the reason it's a cloud, in case you wonder, is not because God loves clouds, although when we're living in Michigan, we probably consider he must because it's how we live. But the cloud covers the glory because it's too much for us to handle. So it's kind of covered in a cloud. Now that cloud is so powerful in their unity that it says the priests can't stand and do their duties. They fell on the faces and just worshiped. Wow. That is a little picture for us of what happened when they were unified, building a very place for God's presence, and in the midst of it, his glory shows up. Now when Jesus dies, the temple curtain is torn meaning the temple is no longer where God's presence is housed. 50 days later, tongues of fire fall on all the early believers and God's presence goes into each one of them. Later, Paul calls each one of us the temple of God. 
I want you to get a picture because just like Israel built a temple, God is building us up as his church. And he's saying, as you can live in unity, as you move in who I am, you will discover a glory and a power like nothing else. See where it goes on in the prayer. I have given them the glory. See the glory? There it is. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. It's not something we can make. It's something he gives. I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Now, I want you to, to understand something here in this. We live in a time right now where there's a lot of claims that we should have unity. We accept one another in everything. That's a very common cultural idea. We accept everything. Now, you realize it's a fallacy because what it really is is accept everyone exactly the way the group that thinks acceptance should be. So if you don't agree with something in there, you are definitely not accepted. We call it negative tolerance. It's not true. And the only reason I want you to consider it is I want you to realize that we will never have unity in humanity on our own. Ever. We cannot have it. It doesn't mean we don't ascribe to it or want to have things go well, but make no mistake, apart from God, you cannot be unified. Look in here and he says, where does it come from? It comes from his presence, his glory, his goodness, who in fact he is. Now we want to unpack this. What does this really look like? As I told you, it speaks wonderfully, doesn't it? Oh, you guys just go, God gives you his presence and we'll be unified. And you go, good luck. I wish it played that easy. Let me take you to how the early church saw it. This is just one of Paul's writings at the end of his letter to Rome, the church in Rome. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. It's not your own, it's from him. So that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you hear the unity in this? It comes from Jesus, it's through him, and it's toward him. Somehow, Paul is praying that we actually would have unity as we accept and love each other and live in this unique way, glorifying God. And he actually goes on to explain it further on what he means. He even says, accept one another. Accept one another just as Christ has accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Now, this is where I want us to sit for just a few minutes because I think it's really important. It is, it's been very interesting to watch culture unfold in recent years uh, for all of us. And I would say, I'd like to say I'm an observer, that I'm not part of it, but it, it's fascinating. I've never lived in a time where people feel more free to say anything they want and that it should be accepted. And yet I've never lived in a time where the, we are the most unaccepting of anything anyone says. <laughs> it's kind of weird, isn't it? You can say anything you want. Wait till I tell you you said the wrong thing and you're done. I mean, it's kind of weird how it is. And, and it's really easy to go, that's culture. But guess what we do in the church? We disparage. We separate. We become unloving. Very judgmental. And very hostile along the way, don't we? I look and go, I wish I could say we're different but I can't. And, I, and I'm, believe me, I'm pointing this at me too. I'm not saying this is all you. I, I have the same things probably many of you do. Every time there's a new event or plural events that happen in culture, I'm ready to say all sorts of things I shouldn't. But what I realize is it's in me. That's what I'm struggling with. 
And this isn't even about whether we agree or not, it's about how we are to each other. Do you know there are 59 one another's in the New Testament? Do you know that it's a dominant theme of all the letters to the church? How people treat each other is central to how the church is to be and live out life. Accept one another. Forgive one another. Bear with one another. Be humble towards one another. Admonish and encourage one another. Be compassionate to one another. Carry each other's burdens. And the list goes on and on and on. At least in, in the church in our area, and I would say in North America, we're very individualistic, aren't we? It's me and Jesus. How's it going with us? What's the central power of the church? Unity. Did you know it's very hard to have unity when you're alone? Well, I guess it's not because you're in unity with yourself. But you realize that's impossible, right? We've, we're taking away the very power of what God has for us. Bear with one another. Forgive one another. Love one another. Look out for another. Live in harmony with one another. I thought about this. Someone who enjoys music, do you know that some of you are pitchy? I could be pitchy too. And all I mean is there's times where it doesn't feel very harmonious, does it? And believe me, I'm not saying I have the answer, but I'm saying I know that we kind of do it on our own and we don't know how to get here. We've missed the centrality of what he says. Bear each other's burdens, be kind and compassionate. Bear with each other, admonish each other, build each other up, pray for each other. We've been in the midst of this study that Bob Goff is leading us through for many of you in groups. And this week, though he won't get into this much of the passage, he uses an image of a bucket. And he just asks the question, what's in your bucket? And what he talks about is really kind of the disposition we have towards each other. And he says this simple thing, there's things we need to empty and there's things we need to fill. You see, what I'm convinced of, and I'll say it for me, I cannot love you with Christ's love on my own. In my bucket are all sorts of anger and frustration and irritation and disharmony, things that I carry. And this is the only thing I know to do. Man, Holy Spirit, would you empty it? Holy Spirit, would you help me? Holy Spirit, I'm just gonna confess to you my struggle. And make no mistake, I'm not saying I get it right and you don't. I have no question you've got a bucket full of lots of junk for me too. And I'm sorry, I'm a mess. And to truly love me in unity, you're gonna have to say, Holy Spirit, would you, I, I can't handle the way he's pitchy right now. I can't handle what he's doing right now. Holy, do, do you get the picture? I, I don't think it's about being in us. I think it's then opening the bucket and going, Holy Spirit, could you start to help me see who Jesus and who the Father are? Could you start to help me see with his eyes and love with his heart and be his hands and his feet? Could you help me where I don't know how to forgive, where I don't know how to live in harmony, where I don't know how to bear with, where I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, because I need you. Unfortunately, what I think we've done is we've tried to live in unity without God or just saying it's a nice idea we ascribe to and aspire to. And I think it's something we have to live in confession towards, saying we need you. To be honest, I think it's part of why the early church had so much of the power they did, they were just desperate. I want you to realize this. 
we answer the prayer of Jesus. You know we do. We don't necessarily answer it with the answer he wants, but we answer it. And if you want to know how we should answer it, it's one interaction at a time. It's each time saying, my bucket's a mess, will you help me? Each time saying, I don't know what it looks like to live in you. Each time saying, would you change our hearts and would you help us to see that we're the temple you're building up, that we want your presence to dwell in us and we wanna be fixed on you. Because I do know this, the more we discover who he is, the more likely we are to have transformation and love each other better. It is not gonna happen by going, I'm just gonna try harder. I'm just gonna try to be accepting. It's gonna happen fixing on who he is and his spirit and his power and his goodness in us. Jesus did not pray this because he didn't think it would ever happen. He prayed it because it's what he wants. It's what he dreams of. It's what he longs for. This is how the passage continues. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. We oftentimes want to reach people for Christ without actually loving each other with the heart he gave us. And that's how we reach him. We start by loving each other with his love. And make no mistake, it doesn't mean you love each other and then you look outside and go, I don't have to love them. It means as we build it up, we start to see other people the same way. And we start to love them with Christ's love the same way. But if we can't even start it here, how can we ever be what God intends for us? When people ask me, and they do regularly, how will we know that Jesus is real? I regularly know. It's through you. It's funny. I, you know, I have a fair amount of friends that are not following Christ that I love dearly, and I long for them to know Christ. And I want to tell you this as an encouragement. I had one particular friend who, he would tell you, he really thinks, he, as a group, he thinks we are not intelligent people. I'm just not going to lie to you. It's a much different word he uses, but it's the same idea. But he tells me everyone he knows that goes to our church, he trusts and he likes and he sees something different. Now, I'm not giving you all a pass, but I'm telling you this. Whoever he knows, he's seeing the love of Christ in you. Don't we want more of that? Don't we want to live in a place of unity that transforms the world and that transforms us? Don't you want to live in harmony with each other? Oh, Holy Spirit, would you empty this crud in me that keeps me from it? And would you empty the crud in me that's causing disunity? Because listen, I'm a mess. I'm not easy to deal with. I could line my family up. They could tell you. Could line the staff up. They could tell you. We won't keep going. You know what I mean. And Jesus prayed that we'd be one. He does not pray things just to pray them. He's saying this can be true. I want to pray for us. And I'm just trusting the Spirit will lead you in what he might have you do to make some step towards this today. Lord, I ask, uh, you know, as I did at the beginning, that what you want to say to us, you'd say, and what you don't, or that I goof on, that'll just go away. Lord, I'm praying that we will begin to answer your prayer in ways we have missed before. Holy Spirit, would you empty the buckets of the way we treat each other and begin to fill us with you? May we discover the oneness of the Father and of the Son, and may we begin to look at each other differently and love each other differently. For your glory, for our joy, I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.